Open up your Bibles with me to Hebrews 8. And the more that we just marinate, yikes, and the more we uh, unpack this chapter, um, I begin to see more and more just how instrumental the entire book of Hebrews is to all of the New Testament, in fact, all of redemptive history. It's just a a very vital book, and um, I pray that you have been enjoying going through it. As part of my intro, allow me to say that you don't often meet too many Christians who say that the book of Ecclesiastes is their favorite book of the Bible. I do have a friend, um, some of you know him, I'm not going to say his name, but he says that Ecclesiastes is among his top favorite books of the Bible. But very rarely do you meet a Christian who'll say that it's their favorite book of the Bible. Now, I only mention this because the book of Ecclesiastes, it does contain much wisdom, much wisdom for the people of God. And, and, and really, it ought to be read along with Proverbs and Psalms as uh, the book of wisdom that we can glean things from. And so with that endorsement of the book of Ecclesiastes, let me share with you something from Chapter 3, verse 1, I know many of you know this verse, where the Bible says, everything has a season. Everything has a season and a time for every purpose under the heavens. And from this, I think it's important for us to observe that, notice there's the seasons that change, they come and go, But the purposes under heaven never change. Those are always going to remain there. And there's things that come and go, but yet those purposes of God under heaven never change. And wouldn't you agree with me that this has to be certainly true of the overall redemptive plan of God concerning the salvation of those who he has predestinated to give to Jesus Christ as an inheritance from all eternity? Wouldn't you say that while in redemptive history, the seasons we just read, Jeremiah chapter 22, that season was quite different than Acts 21, wasn't it? But the purpose of God, the overarching purpose of God, to give unto Christ a people and for Jesus to be their prophet, priest, and king, the mediator of the covenant we're learning about, that purpose has always been continual, hasn't it? Last week, we began to learn a little bit of the reason why and also how the inspired writer of Hebrews was purposeful using this Old Testament prophecy of Jeremiah 31 in his sermonic letter. And he was doing it to demonstrate and to show us while the seasons do change, God's purpose is always the same. And you right now, he was telling that first century audience, you're experiencing that purpose that Jeremiah talked about in chapter 31 in his new covenant prophecy. You're experiencing that now. The seasons has changed, but God's purposes haven't. And you are now being part of the fulfillment of that new covenant. It had begun, he was announcing to them. He was, we saw, using it to announce that its inauguration had arrived and that the old covenant system, the old covenant structure was decaying, waxing old, as he says in verse 13, beginning to vanish 
away. Now, as we came to a close last week, there were some applicatory thoughts that we landed upon that had huge theological implications. There were several of them, but the most important one was this. It was this, that the fact is that the church of Jesus Christ and the, all of the Christianoses, all of the Christians, all of those who are following the Lord Jesus Christ, who consist of His church in this new season, under this new covenant structure, is the sole focus of all of God's redemptive purposes from its establishment unto the end of this age. And so all of history, all of the rest of history ought to be concentrated on the church of Jesus Christ and her commission of what she has been given to do. I think this prominent focus upon the nature of the church, this prominent focus about the work that the church has been given to do is succinctly uh, uh, demonstrated in the very last words of Jesus before he ascended on his throne, which he is in his heavenly session right now, ruling and reigning. And his very last words, you know the scripture well, was from Matthew 28, where he says, and I'll come back to this at the end of the message today, he said in those words, you remember, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth, now go, go ye therefore and teach all nations, evangelize them, and then baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And now that they're in the new covenant community, he says in verse 20, teach them to observe all things whatsoever I command you. Disciple them. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Well, we are here today in Hebrews 8. And we're understanding that how these first century Christians were moving forward in this final chapter of human history, and they were doing it under and with the power of Jesus Christ, specifically with the blessings of a new covenant arrangement that was going to enable them to fulfill this great task that is the sole purpose of all of remaining history. And this is what he was showing them. That, that, that what Jesus told us before he left, he is now performing through his spirit so that you can do the very thing that he's commissioned you to do. Now, we've already considered that how the first covenant was faulty. We've considered how it was intended to eventually be replaced. as how the prophets would have understood it by this second and better covenant arrangement, which is going to fuel us, which is going to equip us, which is going to enable us to do this marvelous accomplishment in all of history, Matthew 28. And we saw that last week, that we are properly interpreting it, that this inauguration, this new covenant arrangement, this thing that's being announced is being fulfilled in and through us, the church. We accomplish that. And so now I want us to take just a couple of Sundays to consider the distinctive marks of this second new better covenant, which is supposed to be the very thing 
that bestows upon us blessings so that we can do Matthew 28 work. And so that's what we're going to do. Now we finally get to come to what Jeremiah attributes to the new covenant and seek to understand that because we put to rest uh, proper understanding of the old covenant, its relationship to the new covenant, and that the new covenant is for the church. So now we get to let our hair down a little bit and we get to say finally we can tiptoe into the blessings of the new covenant that has been given to us. Well, how do I propose we do this? I would propose that we simply look at the prophecy of Jeremiah, how it's being restipulated verbatim here in Hebrews 8, verses 8 through 12. You've got your Bibles there. Look at Hebrews 8, 8 through 12. And let's just read it because there's four distinguishing things that he attributes to the new covenant. Finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And here he's quoting Jeremiah 31. You know this. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they continued not in my covenant when I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. Here it is, the first one. I will put my laws into their mind and write them on their hearts. Second, I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. Thirdly, they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, No, the Lord. For all in this covenant community, his church will know me from the least to the greatest. And fourthly, this fourth promise, this fourth blessing of this new covenant arrangement with the people of God, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. So I simply suggest, beginning today, and who knows how many more Sundays, probably just one or two, we look at these four distinctive blessings that Jesus is going to give his church so that they can fulfill the commission that he's given them. And so today we're going to look at the first blessing in verse 10. I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. The first blessing here comes from Jeremiah 31, verse 33. It's a verbatim repetition of it. It could rightly be translated like this. God says, I will engrave them on their understanding and their affections. Notice with me, first of all, in this first blessing, it's the case subsequently with the other three, this I will work of God. This I will language of God. So we're looking at the first blessing today. And the first thing that we want to notice, or at least that catches our attention, is this I will work of God. Immediately we're taken up by the fact that God says here that he will do this work. Now, it's important for us to understand that what is going on here is a difference between an internalization of something, God will do this work, he is saying, and an external relationship to whatever he's talking about. The, the subject here is his law, isn't it? He's saying, I will write my law in their hearts. I will write my law into their minds. 
And this is a fundamental difference from that which existed in the old covenant. Everyone had an external relationship to the law. But in this I will work of God, that is something different in this better covenant, in this other covenant. God is sovereignly doing the work. He's taking the initiative. He's engaging the certainty that His law will be written upon the heart and the mind. This I will work of God, as I'm calling it, it comes through in the prophecy of Jeremiah elsewhere. You don't have to turn there, I'll just read it to you. Jeremiah 32, 39 through 40. Listen to this concept that he demonstrates there. Speaking of this time when this covenant will be accomplished. He says, God does, I will give them one heart and one mind that they may fear me forever for the good of them and of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. Now this is, as I've mentioned, true with this first blessing in the new covenant, and indeed it's the case with all four. God is supernaturally doing this I will work. This is a supernatural work which God... He brings clear apprehension and understanding of His law. He brings clear apprehension to the mind and the heart of someone. His law, His precepts, what they demand, what they are. But also, not only does He do that, He creates a sacred desire uh, from their own affections to then want to love those laws. And so, we're seeing here... He's, he's saying, I'm going to ensure that everyone that is in this new covenant arrangement with me by my own work will know and not only know, but they will love my law. You see, before in the old covenant, you had people, they knew the law, but they didn't love the law. Their relationship was to the law that I must do. But God's saying here in the first blessing in the new covenant that everyone in in this covenant because of His supernatural work will not have a relationship to the law of must do but a relationship of I must have. I want His law. I don't reject His law. I see it as something good. I see it as something that is right. Something that I desire. And this language that he's using here is to impart the reality that God implants in the heart of all new covenant recipients not only a delight for his word, but also that their affections are changed. And when someone's affections are changed, something naturally happens. Something organically happens when someone's will, disposition, And affections have changed. Guess what? They internally desire something which will eventually manifest itself outwardly in their actions. In other words, when God does this I will work of writing His law within the hearts and the minds of an individual, when He supernaturally, and brothers and sisters, it is a supernatural phenomenon 
that God moves upon the soul, the mind of an individual, that they change. They want to live in light of God's ways, God's law. They don't... When this I will work occurs... It's totally contrary, it's totally antithetical to what we're seeing is precious about the New Covenant, what's different, what's better about the New Covenant, that a person says, I have a disdain for God's ways. Someone opens up the Word of God and preaches on the law of God, uh, tries to apply the law of God, and there's this internal disdain for it. You see, their relationship to it is a, I have to do it, not that I... I have to do it. I want to do it. You see the difference? There's an inward desire that it's good and organically that would produce fruit in obedience. Moving to my second heading, away from the I will work of God. While we're considering considering this blessed, sovereign operation of God, doing that for us, let us be mindful to note That this direct operation, this supernatural work of God, this I will work of God, consider that it's vitally crucial. Vitally crucial. Why? Namely because it's exactly what is required to meet our needs as fallen men and women and boys and girls. And so the I will work of God is exactly what we need because going into our second heading, our need is as fallen man, God to do that which we cannot do. So we have the I will work of God and we see by necessity in this first blessing of prescribing it upon our hearts, we need Him to do it for us. Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 23. All of you know this scripture and familiar with it. It paints the picture so well of why this I will work had to be something different in this time period, in this season, for what Jesus is calling His people to do. In Matthew 28, Jeremiah says, can the Ethiopian change his skin? No. Can the leopard change his spots? We know the answer to that, no. Then may you, may you, natural man, also do good who are so accustomed to doing evil. What's Jeremiah painting there? He's painting a picture that God, we have to have you do this I will work because we can't do what you call us to do in Matthew 28 on and of our own accord. We need something other. We need something else. Now, this truth about natural man that Jeremiah prophesied and pointed out in Jeremiah 13, that can be kind of offensive to modern man, can it? Why is it offensive? Because it's just brutally honest. It's, it's, it's really honest. And of course it is because the Bible tells us that the Word of God is alive. The Word of God is active. It's sharper than a double, two-edged double sword. It penetrates even the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrows. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of heart. And so when we hear the truth about ourselves as natural man, it cuts us to the quick. I would be shocked if there's anyone in this audience today in this church that would think this way, but we can't be presumptuous when we're dealing with spiritual matters such as this. Definitely, there's a good chance that someone online would hear this. 
But perhaps there's someone amongst us today that's not entirely convinced of his or her utter and complete dependency upon something outside of themselves to come and act upon their soul in a sovereign way to compel their minds and to compel their affections to love God and to love His law. I mean, maybe there's someone here or someone that may listen to this to say, well, you know, if I have a full assessment of the law and I have a full assessment that, hey, if I do this, there's a better outcome. Um, if I raise my family this way, this is the end result. Going back to Josiah and Jacob that we were talking about, you know, there's no five-point success plan in the Christian life, all right? Um, if someone could say, hey, yeah, you know, as I size up all the different worldviews and things like that, I, I can pick and I can love God's law. Well, let me give you just a little history lesson from the Bible. <laughs> it comes from Exodus 24. You can turn there if you like, Exodus 24. This in its context is where God is, he's formalizing the covenant, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant with the people, with the Israelites. And the reason he's formalizing it, we know this is because they're going to sacrifice an animal and Moses is going to ratify this covenant. Moses is the mediator of it. He's the chosen man of God to take the blood and to sprinkle it upon the people, so forth and so on. So that's the context we're coming into. A very you could say a sacred, a very sober time period in the life of the Israelites. Listen to what it says. Let's pick up in verse 6. Moses took half of the blood after he had sacrificed the beasts, and he put it in the basins, and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar, and he took the blood of the covenant, and he read in the audience of the people, notice the response, and this is key. They said, All that the Lord has said will we do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it upon the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. Now, the audience there that day, uh, the Jews that were there that day, No doubt in verse 7 when they said, all that the Lord has said we will do, we will be obedient. Uh, No doubt they had good intentions. I believe that they really probably meant what they were saying. But the reality is, is that the people did not possess internally in their minds and in their affections the willpower to match the pledge that their lips gave, did they? I mean, they were really kind of resolved that day, probably, you know, and really wanted to do it. But as history goes on, we see that what they were saying with their lips, they really didn't mean it. And they never repented from not meaning it. This is why that generation, all of them, died in the wilderness. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, wait a minute for a second. Aren't these the people who witnessed the crossing of the Red Sea, the power of God? Aren't these the same people that had God's provision at, during the day and, and during the night? And aren't these the same people that said this, that saw heavenly miraculous food coming from God himself and the manna was given this provision? And aren't these the people that saw the, the, all of the angels, interesting study on Mount Sinai, give the law and the tables of stone written by God's own finger? 
I mean, aren't these the people so that in verse 7 when they said, whatever God says, we will do. I mean, if any of us as a natural man who has had our senses impact in such a way, all of your senses, your, your, your sight, your smell, your, you know, uh, was there heat coming off Mount Sinai, right? I mean, all of your senses involved, you would think that if any natural man could do good, it would be this audience. It would be these people. You would think that. Surely, these people who possessed God's law and understood what was being communicated to them through the law, do this, and understood the rewards that would come with it if they did it, surely they would love God's law and love God's way. Well, just a little bit later in their history, God, anthropomorphically speaking as a man, laments of the fact that they really didn't mean what they said on that day. In Deuteronomy 5.29, Oh, that there were such a heart within these people that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always that it might be well with them and with their children. You see, friends, in order for them to really want to obey, they needed something that they could not conjure up from within themselves. They needed a new heart. And with a new heart comes new affections. Sadly, the chronicles of the Bible's history teaches us that a majority of these Israelites were wicked. They flagrantly broke the law of God, repeatedly demonstrating only that they had a regard for God's law when it suited them. Do you remember uh, Zephaniah, the king? He only had a regard to God's law coming to the prophet Jeremiah to go intercede for him when he wanted to recall the fact that according to the covenant and the law, he was a member of it. And that God did promise he would protect us. That was the only relationship that these old covenant, this first covenant, this other covenant people had. This external relationship to God's law. It wasn't something that only plagued those under the ministry of Moses. It also plagued the people during Jesus' ministry as well. Do you remember that in Matthew chapter 5 when he's teaching on the kingdom of God, he said this, You have heard it was said of them of old that thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whoever looks upon a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. What's Jesus doing there in that statement, in that whole sermon right there? What's he doing? Jesus is poking through whoever was in that audience today, their surface and their superficial external understanding and their relationship to God's law by pointing out their hypocrisy. Their their hypocrisy was that they would only observe God's law when it helped them. Before any of us would be quick to condemn the people in the audience that they would be guilty of that, I think it's helpful for us sometimes to learn just how superficial our own understanding of God's law is. Because it challenges us as those who profess. Remember the book of Hebrews was written to an audience of professors. It challenges us to look in the mirror and ask ourselves, 
Do I have the same sort of superficial external relationship to God's law? Or has God's Spirit truly written His law upon my heart and my mind and has changed my affections to a degree that I'm not that way? This occurred to me one time, years after I had been a Christian, when I was going through training at the London Reformed Baptist Seminary and we were required to read the Westminster Larger Catechism and study it with its, what it says about the law of God. If you've never done that, I would, I, would, I would encourage you to study through the Westminster Catechism, all the proof text, just flesh them out and, and read how it expands the Ten Commandments. And I'll never forget the Ninth Commandment. It was the most revealing to my own heart. You know, the Ninth Commandment, Thou shalt not lie. Listen to what the Westminster Larger Catechism says about it. The sins that are forbidden in the Ninth Commandment, Thou shalt not bear false witness, Thou shalt not lie, are these. Now, some of them are kind of obvious. But then the Scriptures go a little deeper. You're like, hmm, I had a superficial kind of surface understanding and relationship and understanding of God's law that way. All pre- These are things that are forbidden. All prejudicing the truth. Yeah, we kind of get that. And the good name of our neighbors as well as our own, especially in public. Okay. Giving false evidence. Forgery. Concealing parts of truth. Hmm. I was a little convicted of that. Concealing parts of truth. Not telling the whole truth. That's the act of causing someone to accept something as true without all the information. Going on. Holding our peace. When iniquity and sin calls for either a reproof from ourselves or compliant to others. Ouch. Speaking the truth unseasonably. Now this is interesting because... Speaking the truth, you have the truth, you're going to say it. It's true. Truth is truth. But breaking, part breaking the ninth commandment is speaking the truth unseasonably. Have you ever seen someone take the truth and use it like a machete? <laughs> and you're standing in the back and you're going, wrong timing, you know. <laughs> you're using it as a weapon for your own gain. That's what this is talking about. Speaking the truth unseasonably or maliciously unto a wrong end or perverting it to a wrong meaning. Speaking untruth, obvious. Lying, obvious. Slandering, obviously. Backbiting. Detracting. Ouch. Detracting, diminishing the importance of something. So, the, you know, the sin, the lie isn't as gross as it really is, how hurtful it really is. Miscon- this is the larger catechism, by the way. That's why it's still going. Misconstructing intentions, words, and actions. Flattering someone when you really don't mean it. Vainglorious boasting, thinking or speaking too highly or too lowly of ourselves or others. Denying the gifts and the graces of God. Aggravating smaller faults in others. Ouch. Hiding, excusing, or old English word, extenuation of sins when called to a free confession. Meaning, when you're confessing, you're 
minimizing the apparent seriousness of the sin that you've committed. Unnecessary discovering of infirmities in other people is a form of breaking the ninth commandment. Raising false rumors, receiving and continuing evil reports, envying or grieving at the deserved credit of any, endeavoring or desiring to impair it, rejoicing in their disgrace or their infirmity, scornful contempt, breach of lawful promises. Some of these I told you are real obvious. Last one is neglecting such things as are of good report. Now, the first time I studied that, and I really fully appreciated the scope of God's law in that way, in that capacity, in that application, I saw that I was guilty of some of these things. Now, here's the kicker What was my response when I learned the truth? God, oh God, help me from doing those things. I don't want to do those things. Well, what's the difference between that reaction and the reaction of the Pharisee in the New Testament in the book of Matthew when Jesus is teaching on the kingdom of God and they're over there whistling. You can kind of just get the picture. Whistling and kind of looking up in the air and say, what, me? I've never committed adultery. What's the difference there? God's law is written on my heart, my friends. I love His law. I love the author of that law. He is precious. His law is precious and I know it's good for me. My reaction is not, well... I think that's a little bit too technical. I think that that, you know, is really just a little bit too rigid, don't you think? No, no. All the people in this covenant community, all the people that have been entrusted with this work of expanding the kingdom of God, they have had a desire written in their hearts to love His law and their affections are to an extent that they have a disposition that when they encounter the truth of their law according to their own misunderstandings or their own ignorance, they say, God, help me. God, help me. I want to be shaped and conformed by Your righteous law. I'm not a law unto myself. This is in stark contrast. This heart posture is in stark contrast to the religious lawyers who during Jesus' time used used God's law to hide, excuse, or in that old English word, extenuate the real seriousness of something that they had committed. God must perform that I will work for that right response to take place. The old covenant Israelites, unlike us who are the new covenant Israelites, brothers and sisters are distinguished in this fundamental way. They did not, the vast majority of them, have the spiritual internalization of a love for God's law. That is why you're shocked when you read the Old Testament 
and you say to yourselves, God gave them chance after chance after chance and these people kept going back to the idols and blatantly breaking God's law and they had no remorse for it. Of course they didn't. There was no internalization by the I will work and operation of God upon their naturally depraved hearts. But God does that according to Jeremiah 31 to all of those whom He calls unto Himself through the effectual calling of God's Spirit mediated by the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I will write that law upon their heart. The Holy Spirit does indwell. There is a powerful working upon a person's life. And the fruit of that, going back to what I said earlier, a fruit of this covenant people will be marked by obedience to God's law. That's why Jesus says in John, if you love me, keep my commandments. That is a mark of a new covenant person in this new covenant community. But you want to know what's just as an important and distinguishing mark? Don't miss this. Please write this down. A distinguishing mark is an internal desire performed outwardly to obey God's law. But there's a second and a very important distinguishing mark also that when you fail to do that, and you will and you may fail to do that, lest First John is a liar, you repent. And you humbly confess that God's law is true. That God's law is right. That it is holy. And I have sinned. And that God promised me forgiveness of this sin. And God promises to remove all unrighteousness from me. You come in a state of humility and repentance. If indeed God has written His law upon your hearts. You don't fight against God's law. You don't kick against God's law. But when God's law shines like a spotlight into your life in an area where you are in known rebellion, you don't shake your fist at God and say you're you're just a a little bit too hard. You're just a little bit too demanding. No, you say just like St. Augustine, oh God, command what you will. But oh God, knowing myself, give me the strength to do it. Vital balance there in the new covenant recipient's life. A real sincere spirit wrought desire, childlike desire, I want to please my Father. I love my Father. I care what my Father thinks about me. And when I displease Him, I come knowing that He's loving, He's understanding, He's patient, and He will grant forgiveness and help me in my time of need. The old covenant people, friends, they didn't have this. The covenant structure wasn't designed to even give it. There was some other covenant that could grant this, that could be mediated through the Lord Jesus Christ to ever give what we're talking about. Well, we considered this I will work of God, the requirement of our need, and also the Israelites' history evidences its reality. But coming a little bit closer to the end of our time together today, Let's look at a beautiful example of this new covenant example in reality. It's promised in Jeremiah 31. It's announced 
being fulfilled in, through the ministry of Jesus Christ and His Apostle. We're studying it right now in this apostolic sermonic letter in the book of Hebrews. And guess what we see, friends? What we see in the New Testament in this transition epic period of redemptive history is God doing this work. And He's still doing it today. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians. For this church, this is probably one of our favorite books of the Bible. Turn your books, Bibles to Ephesians. And let's look at chapter... You know where we're going to go, don't you? Chapter 2. Chapter 2. Is indeed this the case? With those in this covenant that Jesus in the book of Hebrews chapter 8 is described as the mediator of? Is it true that the recipients and the participants of this covenant, this better covenant, this second covenant, the one that's being elevated as superior over the old covenant, is it true that they have such an internalization of God's law upon their affections and their minds? Well, the witness from all of the rest of the Bible is that yes, yes they do. And this is what distinguishes them. This is what separates them from the sheep's Uh, from the goats as sheep. This is what distinguishes them and marks them as Christ's bride. It's what distinguishes them and marks them as His precious lambs. You already know chapter 1 perhaps of the context of of Ephesians. It's really setting up just really the glorious, sovereign, redemptive scheme and plan of God to save people. We get all through chapter 1, building up to chapter 2, this idea that there was an eternity past, this love, this mercy, this plan of God to save a people by the redemption of the Son. And we come to chapter 2. And there's this announcement in chapter 2. You had He quickened. But it doesn't stop. You hath He quickened who were dead in trespasses in sin. Where in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as other. But God, but God, who is rich in mercy for His great love, wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. Now, there's several things to observe in just this short passage. Notice that those who were moved upon in this supernatural working of God to quicken them, make them alive, notice that they were completely dead. Just like the old covenant Israelites, just like the the old covenant participants in that covenant arrangement, Ethiel, that, that the only thing they understood about God is they thought God was just someone who had a lot of rules 
that God only would give you any love, that God would only bless you if you followed all the rules perfect. And that's how they viewed God. You see, this is what the Bible is talking about. They were dead. They were dead in their understanding of the one true living God. They saw Him as this oligarch up in heaven, ruling and doing things for His own pleasure. Well, in a degree, He does, of course, true. He's sovereign, right? But it's not in that light. You can't cast it in that kind of light. They were dead in their trespasses and sins. And we see here a snapshot of what Jeremiah is prophesying occurs for every single participant that is in the new covenant. God moves and God quickens them. He makes them alive. Without that work, you are completely insane to want to be a Christian. I say that all the time. I say that all the time. Because when I was encountered with the gospel and the truth of the gospel, I didn't see a proposition that, hey, this is the best club to ever belong in. Just come in. There's all sorts of benefits. Your life's going to be easy after that. No, thank God I was at a biblical church and as the gospel was being presented and as I'm around real Christians, I saw that, wow, this is, um, I'm signing up for something major here. Uh, this is something serious that, that, that this minister is proposing in this call that I'm a sinner and that I need salvation and that with that comes picking up a cross and with that comes laying certain things aside and making sacrifices. Wow. I don't know if I can do this. Well, guess what? I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. But by God's kind providence, and I don't entirely mean this, but I'll say it, and my my lack of awareness of what was coming, I hung around and listened to the gospel more. And the longer I hung around and heard the gospel more and more, guess what? God's Spirit began to work. And and God's Spirit, as it began to work, it began to make me alive to the truth of what was being said about me and about who God is. But most importantly, on that effectual day, and yes, my friends, I agree with William Perkins, I know there's a golden chain unto the day that you can pinpoint and say you're saved. Don't compare yourself to my experience. But on that day of that effectual calling, guess what? I was made alive. My eyes saw. The chains fell off. You, you know, you hear that language a lot in Christianity. But there was a true and a real internalization by God's supernatural work where I was dead and I was made alive and now I desire and I love His ways. Going back to what I said earlier, the Apostle Paul, Romans 7, the balanced view of the new covenant recipient Does it manifest itself in perfect obedience all the time? No. I'd be a liar to say that. But does it manifest itself that when I fail, it grieves my heart and it's not just a manly sorrow, what other people think, it's a godly sorrow? I can say yes and amen. And by His sanctifying ability, by His grace, I attempt each day to get up, get the dust off of myself, and come before Him and say, God, please help me today. You're the one who's initiated this, oh God. You're the one who woke me up. 
You're the one when I was lying there in my joyful, blissed ignorance and slumber. Your Spirit found me. I wasn't looking for you. And so God, oh please, walk with me, keep me, guard me, help me. And what does He tell us, beloved, in His Word He will do? Just that. Jesus said, I am with you unto the end of the world. Friend, as we're walking through the meaning of God's writing His law upon His heart, where is this message? Where is this biblical truth? Where is this fresh examination that we're looking at Ephesians 2 finding you today? Where is it finding you? Lest I be presumptuous, there may be someone in here that is saying, you know what? I have the religion of Christianity, but when I uh, sin against God, when I break His law, really, it, it doesn't affect me. I really don't care. You're in a very peculiar situation. And the truth of God's Word would confront you with such a feeling and have to really pinpoint you and nail you down and say, did you ever have a love for God's law? Because if you, in your moment of honest examination, with God being the x-ray of your thoughts and your, all of your intentions and all of your heart, you're not going to flatter yourself. If there ever was that time, well, friend, the chances are is that you're in despondency. You're in a serious state of backslidden. And you need to come back before the thrice holy throne of God and, and say, Oh God, God, I have sinned myself into almost numbness. But oh God, I remember when you found me that day, covered as the Old Testament prophets say, in my blood, covered in my own iniquity. And Lord, you woke me up. You shook me. You made me follow you. You called me. I tried to resist it. I tried to ignore it. But God, you wouldn't let me. You drugged me by an effectual love and grace to the foot of Jesus Christ at the cross. And oh God, I'm here now imploring you, don't leave me to myself. Amen? If that's you, come back to the foot of the cross. Come back to that day. If it's you, if it can be true to be said of you, you know what? I've never had any experience. I never had any experience where I was troubled by breaking God's law. And in fact, I just do it and it's just, it's no thing. I would tell you to repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ because if you do not repent and you are satisfied with Jesus' day, the people that were there in His audience, Moses' day, the people in the wilderness, with this external relationship to God's law, the reality is that you have never been born again. There is a very true reality that you have never truly been born again. You have the form of religion, but you deny the power thereof. You sin and it doesn't bother you. You sin, there's no repentance. When your mother or your father brings the Word of God, when your husband or your wife brings the Word of God, the law of God, the truth of God, when your pastor sits down with you and opens up the Word of God and tries to show you the truth of your sin and you, as the Westminster Larger Catechism said, you want to minimize it, you want to hide it, you want to blame shift, etc., etc. 
Friends, we have no other reason to conclude that the law of God is not written on your heart. That is the logical conclusion. But where there's that demonstration of real humility, yes, the law of God is true and I'm a liar. That's an indication that the person does have the law of God written upon their heart. And there's hope. There's blessed hope. There has to be blessed hope. Why? Because as many of us came in this church today, we have had a week out here in Egypt and we got the scars and the dust and the filth all over us coming up to the doorstep of the church today. But when we enter in across that threshold, guess what we remember? It's all under the blood. And Jesus' promises are true. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. If there has grown a weed that has, I mean, just almost become a tree, friend, today, bring it to your Heavenly Father and ask Him, help me to chop this ugly thing down. Help me to continue to reform and conform to your law, O God. Friends, this first blessing of the new covenant, which every member of the new covenant community has, which is in stark contrast to the first covenant, this is the power. You don't hear me talk about power much, okay? (laughs) But it's not a scary word, all right? This is the power. This is the spiritual glue the spiritual strength that binds you and I all together to fulfill what Jesus said in Matthew 28. To go and to evangelize, teach all the nations, baptize them, and then here's where I pray we're all at now, discipling them. I hope we're doing this with one another. We're doing it in our families. We're doing it here in church. But where there is no internal written law upon any of our hearts, this glue, this spiritual strength and power that's going to enable us to do this as married couples, as child-parent relationships, as a new covenant community, we're not going to be able to fulfill Matthew 28 because some of us are going to be holding out. Some of us aren't going to, we're going to resist and there's going to be unrepentant sin and the effects of that, do we got to talk about Achan in the camp? That's going to be a cancer within a body. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God, we thank You, Lord. We do thank You for the truths that we briefly looked at in Ephesians 2 that reiterates and confirms the truth of what we're learning in Hebrews 8, which again echoes the truth, Lord, of Your sovereign work prophesied by Jeremiah that You, O God, You do come and save lost sheep. And Lord, in that process of internalizing a love for Your Son Jesus and a love also, Lord, for what You say is right and holy, Your law, it comes also, Lord, a desire to want to obey that. Help us, I pray, God, as been mentioned several times in today's message, because, O oh Lord, 
we know the truth of ourselves on this side of glory. At times we are weak. We are fearful to speak when we should speak. Lord, we're fearful of confessing, O God. As James said, to mature people, whether it be in our families or in our church context, Lord, when we need to confess so that we can grow as Christians. Oh God, help us. We know these truths, these warts upon ourselves. And we ask You, as our Heavenly Father, please, oh please, make true every jot and tittle of Your promise in our lives. Never leave us nor forsake us, but be with us until the very, very end. For if You remove, oh God, Your hand from us, we know the truths of ourselves of where we would wind up. And so God, after we pray and we ask You for these needful things, Lord, we conclude by thanking You. We thank You, O God, that You in Your infinite love and in Your infinite mercy, You found us. You sent Your Spirit to come and to make us alive to write Your precious law upon our hearts and to make us to care, change our affections in such a way that, Lord, we we do desire to live for You, to be meek as we sung in the song, to be lowly like Jesus, to be meek like like Jesus, and to love and to serve our fellow man, especially in our family context, especially in our marital context. Lord, help us. We truly do want these things because Your Spirit has birthed within us a new nature. Lord, like the Apostle Peter, we cannot go back because Jesus is the Son of God, we confess. And so equip us, Lord. Enable us. Help us. Sanctify us. And oh God, if there is one amongst us today who who can be described as one of those in the original audience Jesus preached His message to in the kingdom of God, who's playing lawyer with your law, who's playing lawyer with their Christianity, I pray, O Spirit of God, awaken their heart. Show them the truth of themselves and their great need of the forgiveness of sin that is only available at the cross of Christ. Show them today the love, oh, the abounding love of Jesus that He died for all of those sins. Draw them, I pray, effectually into Thy kingdom. Bless us today with salvation, we pray, O God. In Jesus' name, Amen.